All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the Wingmen Podcast, and it is my pleasure to be sitting here with Ed Arnett from TRCP. Ed is TRCP's chief scientist, has been for a while. Um, Ed has his his bio literally reads like, I don't know, if you could create a pedigree for a, for a scientist for an NGO, that would be the one I'd be looking for. And he's even a dog guy, a, a lab guy of all things. And Ed, you and I are going to go hunt some hunt some sage grouse here in a couple weeks. And I just uh, wanted to have you on the podcast and, and talk, talk TRCP, talk sage grouse, talk hunting, dogs, and just, you know, let's get into it and Thank you, first and foremost, for taking some time this afternoon and jumping on with me. Oh, absolutely, Todd. Uh, great to be with you. Cool, cool. So, I mean, without getting – you've been a biologist. You've been working in wildlife biology for a long, long time. How did you get your start doing that? Well, uh, you know, kids – often have that dream of being a fireman or a policeman or something to that effect. And usually they change their mind <laughs> after a while. I uh, grew up watching a gentleman named Marlon Perkins okay. uh, with Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, who many of your listeners will know. <laughs> You're old enough to know. Okay. The contemporary would be Jack Hanna. And I loved being outside, loved going hunting with my grandpa and just knew I wanted to do whatever those guys were doing on Mutual of Omaha, and I just followed that dream. And right out of high school, and what really kind of solidified it, my grand, I grew up in South Central Illinois, so we're both kind sure. of Midwesterners. You on the northern end, me a little further south. I won't hold Illinois against you. I, ah, please don't, <laughs> vice versa. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I took a trip with my grandparents when I was like 12 years old, and that just solidified it moving out west. Um, got to see Yellowstone and just a whole bunch of things along the way. And right out of high school, I, I went to school in Colorado, a little school out west uh, in uh, western Colorado, Colorado Mountain College. Then I went to Bozeman to Montana State, and things just started solidifying that this is really what I want to do for a living. And it all started with my roots in hunting and getting outside with my grandpa hunting and fishing and and uh, just a love of animals and figured out you could turn that into a profession and uh, kind of followed that dream or to its end. So that's how the start uh, came about and then just continued going to school. I felt like I was a professional student forever. I think I went 12 years oh, in a row wow. yeah. <laughs> to school and then took a break and uh, went back later in life and got a doctorate degree and, and uh, just kind of bounced around and worked a lot of different uh, – a lot of different positions in the, in the in the wildlife profession as a whole. So I've worked in, in management realm and in the science realm, and now I'm doing the policy thing with TRCP. Right. So um, done a little bit of everything. No, good for you. Yeah, just reading through your bio, and you and I hadn't had it. We got connected through Brandon Mason and through some other folks actually to work on a sage grouse project that we're that wingman's working on and trcp's jumped on board with that along with a few other folks and you and i are going to get to be able to go down and share some time together in the sagebrush in wyoming and chase some sage some sage grouse around yeah i'm really looking forward to that and the conversations and i really appreciate eastman's taking this on and doing this uh this project um this is a critter that doesn't get 
nearly enough attention and an ecosystem that doesn't get enough either. Kind of the redheaded stepchild of habitats that are out there. But as you darn well know, sagebrush is critically important. It provides so many things to so many different entities, if you will, for wildlife, for ranchers, and for the in various industries. It's a really important ecosystem, and not a lot of people know about it. So it's the more we beat that drum and get the message out, the better. So I'm really looking forward to it and appreciate you guys doing no, the No, absolutely. You know, it's something that when when we first started Wingmen, it was obviously a sage grouse hunt of some sort was was in the talk right from the beginning simply because, you know, it's it's Wyoming. That's it doesn't get much more iconic right. in Wyoming than sagebrush habitat, sage grouse, mule deer, you know, pronghorn antelope, everything pronghorn, that you, yep. and then the songbirds. I mean, you could, we could go list a zillion different things, but we knew 350 plus, 350 plus. <laughs> there's more, th more than 350 species of plant and animals that depend on that ecosystem. No, Sorry no, no, no. I'm glad you did because I didn't have that number. And I'm glad that the professional, that the biologist was able to supply that. So no, that's, that's awesome. Um, but yeah, it was a story that we knew we wanted to tell, but it's evolved into something greater. You know, the the sage grouse has it's more than just a bird in today's in today's world. And facing ESA listings and increased regulation, there's unfortunately there's some politics involved that I don't. An awful lot of yeah. politics. <laughs> and I don't think a lot of folks understand that. I don't think a lot of folks realize that. Yeah. And that that became pretty – in the last year and a half, as we're starting to lay the groundwork for this story, it went from, well, let's go hunt some sage grouse to, well, let's tell a conservation story to, wow, this is more than a hunt. It's more than a conservation story. This is more like a documentary on – a rapidly, I don't know, for lack of a better word, maybe deteriorating situation. Am I correct in, in, in thinking that? It's getting more and more challenging. And, you know, when I think back on, on a variety of things that I've witnessed and have read about and learned and studied over the years in my 30-plus year career, history is replete with examples of how we have to wait. We just push things to the to the end you know right to the right to where that looming hammer of the esa's looming over the top and that makes things much harder and more expensive to deal with and and now what we're really seeing um is a continued loss of habitat but it uh, part of it's what i kind of call demonic intrusion we've got these demons out there in the cheatgrass yeah. and and wildfire cycles that are just eating our lunch in the great basin so for all the all the good work that's been done and the planning and we can get into that later and some of the politics because there's no doubt politics when you start bringing the esa yeah. into the fold and the discussion um it, it it's hard to keep up when you're losing millions of acres annually to these fires and that's you know driven whether people believe in climate change or not you can't argue it's dry right. out there and that we've got bigger fires more extensive fire or more hot fires more extensive and we've altered that fire regime such that they're burning more frequently in sagebrush. It's kind of like, uh, I think Mark Twain was quoted as saying, it's uh, an old growth forest in miniature form. It, it lives a long time and it takes 
a long time to recover. And in fact, some of the historic fires only occurred every 130 plus to to uh, every 300 years, depending on the system and the soil conditions and those kinds of things. And now uh, we may see those uh, that, that fire cycle is much, sure. much shorter. So we're bouncing around here a little bit, but I think, yes, it has become a much more complicated and difficult situation, partly because we pushed it out along, you know, till we had only a few hundred thousand birds and we had a proposal for a listing and so we waited a little long to begin with, and now uh, we're we're seeing this fire cycle in the Great Basin and and other factors uh, across the range of the species that are that are making it harder right. for us. And and you know, just to add one bit of color here, uh, so folks know on sage grouse, uh, I, I I say this anytime I every biologist has to have that one floor elevator <laughs> speech we call it ready to go when somebody says, why the hell should I care about sure. sage grouse? And the reality is the fact that a once widely distributed, very abundant, and liberally harvested game bird was even proposed for listing by the Endangered Species Act should, should concern every hunter, every person in the public, every politician, everyone. That should be a red flag that something's amiss. And so that's, that's one of my taglines for why we should care. It's like something is wrong with this ecosystem if a game bird like that is now being proposed. For yeah, us. you know, and you, you say that, I, I think back about the, the, his, the history of that, a bird that was so plentiful, in fact, that when they built the Union Pacific Railroad, the workers basically made a demand like, you can only feed us sage grouse twice a week. Because <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's all they were feeding them. them. <laughs> there were that many birds. They were so plentiful, so easy to yeah. get. Was you know literally the chicken of the of the Great Basin, and they fed it to them. And you know, I, to be completely honest, I can think of other birds I'd rather eat than a sage grouse. There, uh, I I do I do enjoy them, but yeah, if you had to eat them every single day, I could see that. But like just to illustrate your point, yeah, there should be there should be some red flags popping up when we go from that yeah. to where we are now. And I think as an ecosystem that, I mean, we're looking at mule deer populations across the board in the state of Wyoming that are under objective. Literally, I don't, I don't think there's a single management unit in the state that's, that's at or above objective. They're all at or below objective. And so a lot of that sage grouse habitat is mule deer habitat as well, especially winter range. And so, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. You know, asking that question, what what's going on? What what's the deal? You know, we think we've got some factors, some ideas, but you know, coming at it from your perspective, from a scientist pr perspective, what are your thoughts? What what are you what do you think? Well, the key the key threats are a little different between the western half of the range and the Great sure. Basin and in where we're sitting, you're in Wyoming, me in Colorado. Um, you know, here it's largely driven by disturbance from oil and gas development, urban urbanization, you know, some urban developments. Um, there are other other uh, threats as well. There are. It's not that we don't have fires in this region. Uh, but we have more development uh, in the oil and gas fields. We're seeing lots of wind energy farms going in. There's just lots going on in our landscape. Um, and and there, there are conifer trees and, that are encroaching. 
Um, that happens in the Great Basin as well. Out west, or, or it's in the Great Basin, the threats are primarily cheatgrass and fire that we kind of started talking about. Uh, but also feral horses and burrows are a big issue, particularly in a state like Nevada. Uh, so there's lots of factors. And quite, quite honestly, there were disease issues at one point, for sure. I haven't tracked lately uh, if there are, are continued uh, West Nile virus was the big one. Um, that had links to oil and gas industry and the open uh, water pits and stuff, but but the factors are different. But kind of the bottom line is we've lost about half of the of the sagebrush ecosystem in its entirety. We're down to about 55% of the historic amount of sagebrush across uh, what was then about 14 states where sage grouse uh, occupied. Uh, they're they're extinct now in Nebraska, uh, New Mexico, Arizona. Uh, probably very small populations there anyway, and they've been in decline for some time. And when you look at the long-term trends of of population estimates, they've been uh, uh, declining at about what's now estimated about three percent a year. But that's all related to habitat. I mean, you're a bird hunter. You know how it goes, man. When the habitat's in good shape, following good precipitation years. We're going to get into birds yep, big time because the habitat conditions come on. But, you know, we've seen state transition of the of the habitats. And what I mean by that is the vegetation has just changed. The sagebrush is there, but maybe the vegetation underneath the forb component and the grass components changed. You know, this is not a dig on current landowners and, and uh, livestock right. grazers, but we had a hundred plus years of of grazing uh, that was not always managed uh, uh, to the proper extent. So that could have changed and did change likely vegetative composition. So there's just a lot of moving parts in, in the ecosystem. The bottom line is the habitat has declined and the birds are gonna decline right. with it. Right, yeah, grouse, no matter what kind of grouse we're talking about, aren't exactly known for resiliency when it comes to habitat change, you know. We saw, I saw that growing up um, in the upper Midwest where we looked, the habitat we, we did very well in hunting rough grouse was always second growth. And it seemed like it was always in the five to 15 year cycle. Yep. That, that young, young stage. stage. Yep. There were birds go on and, and, and grouse are cyclical too, as, as most bird hunters understand the population cycles and we I saw that firsthand growing up that you'd have you know every about seven years you'd have a big boom in in rough grouse numbers and if you were hunting that young growth stuff it was phenomenal it, you, you did really yeah, really you well get your birds and so yep. when yep. that when that kind of stuff disappears you know it, back there it was forestry practices had a big role to play you know, and, and it kind of seemed like as went the rough grouse, so went the woodcock. And I don't know, man, it, it's interesting, but sage grouse, I can see some, I can see a lot of parallels there. And just looking at it, just looking yeah. at it going, there's, yeah, there's, there's definite things you could put your finger on. You talk about the wild ho the feral horses. I saw that this spring we did, we were doing let counts down south of Casper between Casper and and uh rollins wyoming and mm -hmm. shirley basin yeah country. we were in we were on the uh we were on the pathfinder ranch down there and we were helping yep. helping well. with let counts and it was amazing we we're the first lek we were counting in the first morning 
there was, we're sitting there watching the birds and all of a sudden, you know, a dozen feral horses come over the ridge and the ranch manager was none too pleased, you know, and he said, started pointing out the habitat and he said, you know, we haven't had cattle in this pasture in not we, but there hasn't been cattle on this lease yeah. in over a year. And it, man, it looked like it been grazed right down to nothing all year long. And it was straight up from the horses. So that from the horses, know, yeah. uh, it would, so they're, you're taking Forbes out of the, out of the equation then because they're eating everything in sight and they have a tendency to just sit in one place and destroy it instead of moving across the landscape like cattle or, or bison would. Uh, it's interesting. Like you said, a lot of components, a lot of components. Yep. And, and tillage too. I, you know, there was a lot of ag conversion that was a, a big uh, problem in Montana and North Dakota and some of that reason, region. Um, and to that point, I, I, I can always remember this graphic. They call it the reverse hockey stick because uh, some of the researchers that work on this, because it doesn't take much uh, disturbance in a landscape like from ag tillage or other conversion um, from whatever, pick your favorite disturbance and development to see a really steep decline in sure. the birds. They're very sensitive. They're a big landscape bird. They're not like pheasants and quail, which like that diversity, right. um, you know, crops here and then, and then some cover and, and mixtures, uh, lots of edge in between. That's not sage grouse. Not to say they don't like edge. I mean, you can have sagebrush that's too thick. Um, and you've been out oh, in those situations. I know you have. Probably, you just you're not going to see any sage grouse. You're just damn too damn thick. But they like big landscapes. Sharptail grouse, same thing. Prairie chickens and sharpies are acclimating a little better. It seems like they, you can you can kill them in wheat stubble yeah. and uh, yeah. <laughs> down the middle of a cut cornfield. Uh, chickens anyway, and I pass shoot prairie chickens every once in a while, flying in and out of it. it was yeah, well, I, that, so that's not your. That's not yeah, safe no, 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 no. And it was growing up. We had we had sharp tails too, and that they're they're yeah, interesting Minnesota. bird because they're so widespread as far as as far as a grouse goes. You know, we had them. A lot of folks think of them. Oh, they're a prairie bird. You know, you shoot them in the Dakotas and in Nebraska, eastern Wyoming, Montana. And I was like, no, we had them in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And it was like, yep. we had lots of them. They still hunt them we, there, too. They didn't for I a believe. few years. They, they the closed season. that season for a few years. And then through the efforts of sportsmen out counting leks and helping biologists as much as they could, they realized, wow, these birds have bounced back to the point where yeah. we need to lobby for a hunting season. And they got one. And it's and yeah. and it was, you know, when I was a kid, you go out and I think you could shoot f three to or three or five of them or something like that and we always started the season doing that because the woods were too thick to hunt to hunt upland birds you couldn't see anything so we, we hunted sharp tail and yeah then i when i moved out west we had lots of sharp tail and i lived in a place in northeast wyoming where you couldn't shoot sage grouse and i remember the first time i saw them i was out hunting sharp tail walking them up and these five birds flush at you know 30 yards out in front of me and they got up and i'm like those are not sharp tail and i knew immediately yeah. <laughs> what i was looking at but they were they were a rarity there yeah that's up in the powder river i assume i remember when that unit was open and i went up there antelope hunting one year i think it was 2003 and it was closed then um and i you know i, I want to say it 
has opened back up. I haven't looked up the regs this year. I usually hunt in you know, section right, right. one, you know, the main part of the state, and I just don't even go up there. I wouldn't even feel good about shooting. Well, and good luck there. finding them. You know, it's, it's heavily exactly. private, heavily really. private, and there's just not a lot of birds yeah. there. And to begin with, right. it's kind of you're kind of on that fringe for the habitat right there because it's where the sagebrush yeah. habitat kind of starts and the prairie kind of ends. And so yep. it's interesting. It's a transition zone, and and you just I never did see a lot of birds there, but occasionally. But since I moved, yeah. since I moved into you know into north northwest Wyoming, we see lots of sage grouse, and not not like the old yep. timers talk about, and not like, well, Guy and Ike has been talk about when they were when they were young men or younger, that you know they talk about yeah, it, there's not the birds that there that there used to be. Yeah. Well, in, in your neck of the woods there and where we're going to end up hunting all the way down through that, you know, main core of the habitat, that's those are strong right. birds. And there's still good numbers of birds. There's still big expanses of sagebrush. But, um, yeah, we're, we're losing opportunity, though, all the time. I, I, I know we'll get into discussion some hunting season and, su- and such, but um, that that's one thing that has not been identified as a major threat by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, by the states, um, and by most of us NGOs that work in this space. Hunting is not a major threat, and if it is, uh, it's a just, you know, we're thinking, we're not thinking about the root cause of the problem, which is always going to be right. habitat and habitat right. quality. Well, that, you, you segued beautifully, because that's exactly where I wanted to go, was talking about hunting. There's been a there was a recent meeting um, by the one of the working groups in Wyoming considering sage grouse talking about um, kind of like a limited quota type scenario where almost like with sandhill cranes here where you have to apply for a tag or turkeys where you'd have to apply to hunt sage grouse and draw a tag. Um, I think that's I think. I'm on the fence about that. It's one of those things where I, I read the article, I got thinking about it, I thought, well, it's an interesting idea. And knowing what you just said about, well, hunting really doesn't have a big impact, but yet they released their estimated harvest data and the public kind of went, <gasps> Yeah, they saw you the thousands 7, of numbers. birds, and it's like, yeah, but if we look at overall mortality, if we look at overall what that popu- what that current stronghold population can withstand we're not taxing that resource yeah and i um i think the key thing there and it's certainly it doesn't hunting hasn't been demonstrated to have that population level effect everywhere it can there's no question i think something think people one thing people need to understand is sage grouse are not pheasants and quail they're a different critter they're very, they have very high overwinter survival, and they're pretty hardy birds. So they're far longer lived than, like, you know, bobwhite quail, right. for example, uh, and certainly our exotic species like pheasants and huns and chuckers, which are much more susceptible to winters um, and fluctuate more, more, more so than um, than sage grouse do. So they have to be managed more conservatively. Back in the day when I was going to grad school at the University of Wyoming and I first started hunting sage grouse, it was a three bird a day limit, nine in possession for a couple couple of months, as I recall. And it's just it's just gone gotten more and more conservative ever since. 
in response to the populations and the loss of habitat. So I think the state wildlife agencies have done their job well in terms of tracking how they can manage long-term sustainable harvest, but all the while trying to deal with this loss of habitat so we can have those long-term sustainable harvestable populations and, and you know, reasonably liberal so we don't have to go to the, the permit system. And, you know, Wyoming isn't going to go to it this yeah. year, but they're going to contemplate right. it next year. Part of the problem in the estimates, I mean, a lot of these estimates, Todd, and you, you very likely know this, are pretty crude at best. Um, for pheasants in Nebraska, what do you what do you look up in Nebraska when you look at the game bird outlook? It's the rural mail carrier, um, you know, routes that they count you know, birds as they drive their mail carriers. It's not a grand uh, piece of science there, but it's a long-term index. They do the routes the same way. So so there's some level of standardization to it, but it's it's still one piece of a very complex puzzle to estimate populations. The wings that we put in our wing barrels, and I would strongly encourage everybody that shoots grouse to go find a wing barrel and put those wings in the wing barrel because the biologists really need that data because now they're getting sex and age ratios that help them estimate the population. So there's just a few pieces that we're able to gather. And then the lek counts you mentioned earlier, the the males are very, uh, have very strong fidelity. They go back to those places year after year after year. Uh, There's biases in counting that, in, in in counting birds, depending on who's doing the counting and and uh, how many times you go and the factors that are, are associated with light and, and that kind of thing, the weather, lots of things influence the ability to see all of the males there, but you can't count the females. That, you hit that so nail on the you're head. Estimating, you're estimating yes. the females. Guestimating. No, you're absolutely <laughs> right. And I, I'm, so, I don't mean to interrupt you, Ed, but I oh, just no, want to kind of fine. illuminate that point about not being able to count the females. We The one like that we were counting this last spring, we were, we weren't, we didn't bother the birds. I mean, we were not bother hindering yeah. them at all, but we were close enough with, with good binoculars and, and glass where we could see everything that was going on. And some of the video yeah. and pictures that we got are outstanding. And the, the ranch manager that we were with, he's like, wow, there's like, 10 more males here today than there was yesterday. Yeah. And, I, and he goes, all right, now, you know, and they stick out big white blobs out there on the, on the, on the prairie and the Lex have a tendency to be pretty open. And yep. he said, all right, now try to count the females. And Hard, isn't no it? way, <laughs> no way, you know, and there was one big old boss rooster, I guess you'd call him. I don't know. And, he had, he had all, almost all the hens were right with him and they just looked like clumps of sagebrush and they weren't really moving yeah. around. And then they'd shuffle a little bit and you lose count. And I think, man, that, that right there is an example of, I am not sure we really have any idea how exactly how many birds we have. I mean, we know that the trend, there's not as many as there used to be, but putting exact numbers to it, right? that's, that's tricky. Yeah, no, there's a lot of variables that go into it and a lot of bias, and, and it's just hard to count those. Fem- you just don't count right. the females. Right. Um, they're very cryptically trying to get in and out of uh, the, you know, of the lack, 
with all the dancing that's going on and all the activity and calling, they're trying to get in and get bred and get out before they get hit by a golden eagle right. or, or, right. or a red-tailed hawk or, or another predator. Um, so it's an estimate. And that that wing data that comes in tells you, gives you an estimate of the ratio of males to females. And that's kind of what they use. So if you get an estimate on the lex, you of males of, and then they multiply that out by that ratio, estimate the number of females, and there's your your best estimate of a population, sure. of a total population size. Right. So, so that back to that meeting you were talking about, what hadn't been done yet was what was a very necessary piece of information, was what that estimated population size was, based on last year's harvest data, coupled with this this year's spring data. So when people heard 7,600 birds, that was out of context. Right. And it, it's worse when you just, if, if you're just talking about how many wings were in barrels. Uh, I know people that got all excited about hundreds of wings of hens in the barrels. And it's like, it's completely out of context. But the key thing, I think, with sage grouse, uh, aside from the fact that they're, you know, they're not the same as other game birds, Oftentimes, people hear what's called terms called additive and compensatory mortality, and what what that means in a nutshell is if it's compensatory, it's just like it sounds. It's compensating for other forms of natural mortality, particularly of juveniles, uh, in a given year. Um, so that's uh, as opposed to additive, which is adding to those natural forms of mortality. So. What the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies and the state of Wyoming is part of that, what the biologists have and the science has generally said that generally less than 10%, some suggest 5%, and this is, depends on the subpopulation you're talking about. Some of them just get plain hammered. I mean, think of your favorite honey hole, and if you see people going out there all the time hammering the same broods, uh, it, it may need a different kind of management. Hunting may have an additive effect. Uh, it may not, but um, it's going to be different from one population to the next. But that additive mortality seems to kick in above 10%, according to the science. But there's also a timing factor in there where the birds that are harvested after, and some of the science I've seen on it suggests it after about the first week of October, now the birds have kind of gotten through that period where they're more susceptible to mammalian predators, avian predators, and other, other sources of natural mortality to where harvest can become okay. additive. So again, I think the states have be, have tried to time this at least, you know, recently uh, in Montana. They had a three-month season for a long time. I cannot remember. I didn't go check their regs, and I should because I'm thinking about heading up there sometime <laughs> this fall. But but uh, they were a three-month season. I think they dropped it down to a couple months, and I don't know where they're at today. They may just be a month. But Wyoming went from that longer yeah. season. Uh, hell, they started shooting grouse wind. I, I never hunted them in August, but I heard you could start hunting That's, them in August. At one I'd time. heard the and, same thing. Yeah, so now we're in that mid to late September period for two weeks where theoretically, and according to the data that are out there, that should fall into that compensatory range. And my understanding in talking to the biologists with the with the state, they think, uh, based on last year's uh, harvest data coupled with this spring's um, uh, let count data, that the harvest was right around 6.5%. Okay. Um, 
but there are areas I know one um, that I'm not going to take you to <laughs> because I think it just gets pounded. Yeah. And I'm not even going to hunt it this year. I start getting that guilt trip going <laughs> where it's like, well, these birds late in the year, late in the season have probably been hit about four times. I think I'll go find somebody that hasn't yeah. been harassed. And you can find those pockets of sage grouse in, in a number of places. You just got to go sure. look for them. So, so those are important concepts on the, the additive versus compensatory. And, you know, some would say the jury's still out, but we're kind of working with what data we right. have. Um, and some species don't get any lek counts or any estimates. There's just a season on blue grouse, dusky grouse, they now yep. call them. I stick with blues. I'm a traditionalist. I, I hate those name changes. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad I'm not so, the only one who feels that way. Oh, man. I, I, I just don't say blue. I just I don't say duskies, but I feel like I have to here because somebody might not know what the hell a blue yeah. grouse is. But, but, you know, there's no estimates right. on those. Very few, anyway. So... Well, good luck. Yeah, good luck counting. Uh, makes it good luck counting dusky grouse or rough grouse or something like that. You know, they go out. I, I I know they can do you know hoot counts or drumming counts or things like that where they're they go out and they listen for them. But that's just you're just hearing right. one male or two males or three males. You're not you're not hearing you're not seeing the birds and so yeah and and honestly I think the number of mountain grouse guys. It, it's just not there. there. There's there's people that do it, you know, and and I'm one of them. Religiously, but, but there, yeah, you just you're don't right. see them. There's for I mean, unless you've got a dog and you can catch those birds out in the open early, where they're out eating grasshoppers in the sagebrush or on big open, wide open parks, you're hunting them in the in pretty thick timber, and they, I mean, you know as well as I do, they just have a propensity to just fly up on a limb and look at you. And it kind yep. of loses it. I think you got swatting it. them off a limb with a twelve gauge loses its luster. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you probably have killed more with blunts on your arrows of bow hunting as I did when I bow hunted. Since, yeah, uh, I, that's with a gun. <laughs> there's always a bird tip or two in my quiver while I'm elk hunting. Uh, always, always. Yep. When I was in grad school, I did bighorn sheep work in encampment uh-huh. on the encampment herd. And come September 1st, I started driving my own personal truck because I always carried a pistol with me. Couldn't carry that in the sure. rig. And uh, I always carried my 22 pistol with me, and I probably shot more more blues with a pistol than I ever have with a shotgun. I believe that. I be- and they, well, <laughs> poor broke student, you know. You're a poor gotta, student, gotta and they the eat good. You know, they're they're oh, they're yes, good eating extremely, birds. extremely. But yeah, that's that's a hunt that uh, well, it opens what. To, tomorrow. tomorrow that opens tomorrow so um at least here in wyoming it opens tomorrow i don't know what it does in colorado but colorado's open okay. tomorrow too i think yeah. i think most it places in the september west are september 1st but <clears throat> i yep it was funny guy walked by a minute ago and before we started chatting and he's like what are you doing this weekend and i don't have an elk tag i, I i've got a general tag but it doesn't uh it doesn't start till the 15th of september for me and uh I said, I don't know, probably going up, taking the kids up on the mountain someplace and chasing grouse around and making archery elk hunters mad someplace. <laughs> I irritated a few last year, that's for sure. Yeah, it's <laughs> one of those things that... that <clears throat> the joy of public lands, you know, everything. That open. multiple use <laughs> philosophy gets 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 strained <clears throat> once in a while, you know. But no, that's that's super cool. Well, I am, I'm stoked to hunt with you later on, you know, in a couple weeks. Yeah, it's going to be gonna, fun. It's coming up it quick. Is. It is. So 
you're a dog guy. One of the things that, that people may or may not know about you is that, you know, set all the science and everything aside and you're a, you're a, you're a dog guy. You've been a judge, AKC judge. You've been a master, master hunter judge. I mean, you run and you, what are you running right now? Are you running labs or do you have some pointing dogs? I have uh, two labs, and one is still functional. The other, the old gal would probably lie to you and tell you she's functional, but uh, she's pushing 14. Uh, she, hunted, she hunted last year, though, and hunted pretty damn hard. It's just you don't hunt yeah. the, the older dogs every day. But I have two chocolate labs, and I just uh, switched it up a little bit and got a poodle. Player. No kidding. So, so I kept my brown dog theme because this little guy is uh, dark, dark brown. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying a versatile, so I'm, I'm switching teams a little uh -huh. bit here, <laughs> uh -huh. but I've, I've, always, I've been looking at getting a pointing breed and then I decided to go with a versatile and cause I hunt ducks a lot too. I hunt everything, uh, uh all birds. And I went with this poodle pointer breed because I just read a lot about it. I confirmed it with my buddy, Ronnie Bame, uh, who runs the hunting dog podcast, uh -huh. Ronnie and I are friends and I've hunted sage grouse before and. I asked him about it, and I've asked a number of friends, and no one has said, don't get a poodle pointer. They all said they're great dogs, smart, easy to train, really, really good to hunt with. So and I like this dog so far. He's really good. But I started with laps, and, you know, I I, I hadn't always been a, a dog guy. I When I grew up, I grew up in the Midwest hunting small game like every kid yep. in the Midwest does. But... My grandfather was was my hunting mentor. Uh, never knew my dad, and my my grandpa was my de facto dad. And he started taking me hunting when I was probably five or six years old, just just to go. And um, he never had a dog. And when I started hunting with him officially when I was ten years old, uh, still didn't have a dog. We didn't even have a beagle to run rabbit. He loved to hunt rabbits and squirrels. So we were equal opportunity predators on the small game front. You kick a kick a brush pile, and if a cockbird comes out, yeah. you yell it or you shoot at it anyway, or cubby a quail. But most of the time, you're hunting, you know, furred small small game. And and I got into hunting birds when I moved to Wyoming and or Montana, and and then going to school there, and then in in Wyoming, that's when I first hunted sage grouse, but still not without a dog. But when I moved to Oregon in 1990 and started my professional career, I started with the Forest Service, and I went on a duck hunt with this guy. And I'd hunted ducks in Montana. I wrote kind of a funny story about the day I decided to buy a dog. This is all true. Um, I, I used to shoot ducks up in Montana, but I'd retrieve them with a damn fishing oh, yeah. pole and a great and a great big hook. Man, you know how that goes when you don't have a dog. You got to get them out of that deep water. Been there somewhere. and done that. Yeah, <laughs> get you a big snagging hook and. Uh, one day I went duck hunting I, with a guy, a fellow biologist. He had Chesapeake Bay Retrievers, and I was fascinated by that dog. I, he had it trained to handle, and she marked and was really well, marked doubles and triples and was quiet in the blind, and I was just fascinated. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. But I wasn't quite ready to get a dog, so I went hunting uh, a couple weeks later and uh, shot a couple of mallards out in the lake and then went Oh, now what am I going to do? <laughs> I forgot my pole. So you can imagine what I ended up doing because I don't leave game mm -hmm. in the woods. 
and um, swimming back, buck naked. I'm yelling at myself. I'm buying a damn dog, <laughs> and I bought a, I bought a little chocolate lab that uh, I didn't want a Chesapeake. I, I had no particular reason why, other than some of the some of the aura that surrounds yep. them. But um, I, uh, I went with a brown lab. Um, they're kind of the underdogs. They they always got a bad rap and continue to do so, but. I got some good ones. I got a, a particularly good one. Uh, my second dog, uh, he was kind of my, my Tom Brady, nice. I call him, or pick your favorite, my Aaron Rodgers, pick your favorite quarterback. He was really good. But, but I got into that hunt test uh-huh. game and training, and I did that for a long time. And I, I still play the game. Uh, I still judge. Um, I just don't, I just haven't run my dogs. Just life got so busy and I travel so much. It's just hard to hard to train. I always tell my friends, I uh, freaking biologist, man, I, I haven't got enough time to train and I don't make enough money to pay a trainer. <laughs> so, so I just get them trained up to go, uh, go fetch up my birds and we hunt, 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 I hunt a lot. with. My That's dogs, awesome. So. Yeah. We had, uh, Chad Carmen on, uh, talking about doing hunt test stuff and, He's up in Missoula, and he's a big hunt test guy. And then I had the guys from Boomtown HRC down in Casper. They were on. And, of course, they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, you got to get that new puppy and hunt test, man. You got to do all this. And I'm like, I have three little kids, and I live in the middle of nowhere, and there's no the closest hunt test to me is two and a half hours away. It would cost Absolutely. you a fortune. To get it, to get. I like the idea of doing it, and I, I just, said, I told my wife, I said, if we lived closer to where there was a, a bunch of hunt tests going on, I'd do it. I'd do it. Yep. I think it would be fun. But, and that was Oregon. There were plenty of clubs, lots of tests, plenty of training grounds. You know, good opportunity. If you don't have all that, you, you're going to throw money down right. the toilet. Well, uh, potentially, mm-hmm. um, you know, because the, the dogs have to be able to pass the test. Plus, they're running about a hundred bucks right. now, and, and travel and hotel and rooms and travel. Food and, and, exactly. Yeah, it's it's just a lot. And and like I said, but it's fun. It's, I would totally do it if I had so, if I had closer stuff and and well, if I didn't have kids. If I didn't have if I didn't have three little kids, right? Wife and I'd be traveling with those dogs every weekend, going someplace. You know, that'd be that yeah. would be a ball. But yeah, I'm in. the but you know, but but you can still train them. There you you go. can still train them to do the game. You know, that's the key. So, and that's what I'm in the middle of right now is training. Hondo is, uh, what is he? About four months, four and a half months, and we are throwing lots, throwing lots of marks. You know, um, little bit of live bird introduction. Obedience, tons of obedience, tons stuff, and tons yeah. of obedience. You yep. know, I think. Um, I bought him from Southern Oak Kennels, Barton Ramsey, and that was one of the things Barton and I talked about on a previous podcast was you think like 90% of, do- of problems with dogs in the field are obedience problems. I completely agree yeah. with that. And that's that's been my experience with my own dogs and with other people's dogs. And so just trying to make like this dog is going to be, if I can help it, this dog is going to be rock solid in obedience um, I yeah. had something happen and I did a solo podcast last week talking about this, but I had something happen three weeks ago. We were down fishing a local river and brought the dogs home. And man, by that evening, both of my dogs, my old dog, who's nine and my pup, who's a pup 
had just explosive diarrhea. And it went, I, they got into well, something. That's, immediately I'm thinking, got into something, don't know what it was, but we got into something. And the young, the little dog, the pup, went from that to being like lethargic. And I called my, I told my wife, I'm like, we got to go to the vet. And we, I said, this isn't, yeah. this isn't just a bug. There's something more, there's that something more this to ain't this. Right. Took him in, yep. got him on some meds. We did some stuff and any, he, and he got cleared up a couple, you know, I think a day and a half, he was fine, but he just, he wasn't quite himself for that whole week. He was lethargic. And I told my wife, I'm like, I'm not training. I'm, I'm not even going to just get him better. Yeah. Just let him get better. Miss a week. Big deal. Who cares? I'm going to get him better. Well, then come to find out. This local body of water, the reservoir that it drains, had a cyano had a cyanobacterial cyanobacteria died. Yeah, all right. And there were there cattle that cause. died and the whole ball of wax. And I'm going, my dog's got cyanobacterial yep. poisoning. Holy smokes. Yep. I've never had that happen, but my wife constantly is warning me when we come up to stock tanks and stuff about keeping the dogs out. She's worried yep. about it. And it, it can be a big issue. For oh, ab- sure. absolutely. But, yeah. And it's something I didn't have really th- give much thought to in the Midwest. And, 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 yeah. and, you know, I'm in, I'm in the river, we were trout fishing, we were in a drift boat and I'm not thinking anything of it. And then come sure. to find that out. And I was like, oh my gosh. So yeah, when I'm running watermarks wow. now, I'm always checking the advisories to see where there's blooms and what's going on and holy smokes. But if I would to let that go. There's no doubt in my mind that puppy probably would have died, you know. Probably would have killed him. Yeah, but that's yeah, crazy. If, if, if you, um, I'm just curious. I'll ask you a question. What do you think about the snake vaccine? The, the you know, snake vaccine. What, what's I your take it. on that? Because I'm married to ask my right. vet his opinion. I'm curious. Well, I give it. Um, I both my my yeah. pup isn't old enough quite yet to get the first. Or did he? No, he's not old enough yet to get the first round. I think they wait till six months. Well, my old dog. Six but my old dog ago. gets it. When I first got the Mackinac, the old dog, the vet that I was using didn't didn't administer it. He didn't think it was worth it. He said, "I don't think the I don't think the research proves anything. I don't I don't I think it's a, I think it's a scam, basically." Every other vet that I've talked to said, even if it is a scam, it's added insurance for your dog. Places we hunt might be the difference between getting them into Lander or or <laughs> Matitzi or wherever. And, to a vet or bags. and that's exactly yeah. my thoughts. I thought, you know, if the dog gets bit and doesn't have the vaccine, it's 50-50. Right. Because we are a lot of times, we're a long ways from a vet. Hour, it can be it can be hours times. Yeah. Hours, exactly. And, I thought, and if you don't have cold packs, I always carry cold mm-hmm. packs. Because that's the key thing is getting it, getting this blood slow, yeah, slowed down. Yeah, exactly. On a bite, and you're probably so. like me. You know, I I carry, um, I've got that that gun dog outdoors first aid kit. Have you seen those? I haven't, but I've been uh, thinking about starting to look. I've got my own homemade one. My vet supplies me with stuff, but yeah, maybe I'll. Uh, maybe you've now talked. I've me added into to it. I've added to it here, a little bit. I need, I need... But it's sweet. It's sweet, okay. and it's blaze orange. I mean, it. You just look in the back of your rig and there it is but yeah it's it's gundog outdoors is is the one that i have um alex langbell is is the owner of that he was on the podcast a while back and he he sent me one and it's sweet 
it's it's a really cool deal, really complete. He did a lot of research with vets in that, huh. and yeah, it, it's it's a good one. It's a good one. So it's I'll check him out. I'll tell him yeah, that sent me. Maybe I'll send you. Maybe I'll send you might. another one. Never know. <laughs> Never know. But yeah, no, it's it's a pretty cool one. But you're right, man. So I I I let the dogs. I make them get it, or don't make them get yeah. it. I just take them and, and, yeah, and right, get yeah, it. Right. And because it's one of those things for me, it's kind of like. I'm, we're so far from vets that I I'm gonna I'm gonna hedge my bets on that one. It's an insurance policy. Yep, and yeah. it doesn't have any it doesn't have any adverse effects. You know, it'd be it would be one thing if well we can give them this rattlesnake shot, and but there's a pretty strong chance that or there's a chance that your dog's gonna have complications or it could lead to renal failure yeah. or it could do this and it's like. Mm, I might hedge my bets a little bit because between you and me, my dogs see 90% of their use when there's no snakes out. You know, right. I'm hunting and I, I might, I'll take them up in the mountains in September, hunt sage grouse a couple of times. And other, otherwise, they don't see, they don't hit the ground for upland birds until it's see cold, the country. Yeah. You know, it's partly why I go to the sand hills a fair bit because uh, the snakes aren't well distributed there because they don't have any place to den. Oh. They can't den up in that in that sandy those sandy dunes. So I spend some time, but you can still run into them. I've never in all these years, I can't even do the math between 1991 and now, but it's uh, so what? That's 40 years, 30 years, 40. Anyway. In all the years I've been running dogs, I know, <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> I can't even do math in my head. But regardless, all the years, the decades I've been hunting dogs, I've never run into snakes but twice. And I saw them first before the dogs yeah. did. And I actually got a, a live correction on Ooh. one. When the, I brought the dog in and he, he started nosing up and I let him get just close enough to see it and I lit him up. And we've, so that was my snaking. I haven't snaked them right. either. Snake burped them. So, you know, and I'm, I'm admitting things that I should probably do, get the vaccine and do a snake snaking program. But um, I, I just, I never, I try them like you. I hunt mostly when they're already gone into hibernation, yeah. but there's always that chance. I ran into one in Montana that really caught me off guard because it really wasn't in a snaky looking place. And the dog had just, flushed a covey of sharp tails we had a nice double out of it and he came back and he was sniffing around and i just kind of barely heard i could barely hear it i bet you i couldn't hear it now because i'm older yeah. and uh and i've lost half my hearing but i i probably couldn't hear that but i did hear it that time and i'm looking down in there and it's like what the hell is that and i stick my head down in there and it's a little baby a little itty bitty one and um it was close that was the two close and another close call but where i got the correction on it he was out sunning himself, and it was late, actually. That was in uh, it was in late September, but it had been real cold. And this was kind of yeah, a warming yeah. day, and that damn thing was sitting out on the rock, so I saw it first. But anyway, I, uh, I'm i going to get the vaccine. You convinced me on this one, so at least for my puppy, because this dude's all yeah. over. I mean, he ain't like my labs. Even, you know, labs have enough risk, but at least they're within 20, 30 yards. You know exactly where they're at, this little pointer is going to be all over the board well and you never know too <laughs> which is what they're supposed to you do can't in a lot of times in a lot of cases like that where you got a big running dog you might not see what happens and he comes back and you're and you're exactly. like man what's wrong with my dog and you don't you know you're not going to yeah. see it 
like you said, with a lab, nine times out of ten, you're going to see it happen because he's going to be he's yeah. going to be pretty close, you know. But yep. well, that'll be yeah. Yep, I, I do. You know, it's I've gotten mixed. I've like I said, I've gotten mixed. Uh, I guess reviews from different veterinarians, but the lately what I'm hearing is why not? You know, it doesn't. Yeah, hurt. the conventional wisdom is why not? It doesn't not? hurt yeah. your dog, <laughs> so why not do it? Right. You know. Yeah. And so I I do, I do. It's one of those things that it's kind of like, whew. Yeah, I had some friends that bought our little ranch uh, outside of Thermopolis, Wyoming, and they had a a, jet, a little Jack Russell Terrier that came with the ranch. And he just was kind of there. And uh, they said, well, what, you know, you guys don't want this dog. I'm like, no, he, he was, he came with the ranch when we bought it. So you guys get him too. And he's a snake killer. And they're like, okay. They said they hadn't been there three days. And that dog is dragging this rattlesnake around, you know, basically eating it. Heart mongoose. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, wow, I wonder if wow. he got bit. Well, sure, shortly later, yeah, he swells all up and goes and lays in the shade. Well, they call a vet, and the vet's like, wait, wait. You're... He knew the dog, and he's like, oh, that dog's been bit about 25 times. Don't worry about it. He'll be, he'll be better in about a day and a half. Yeah, he was. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Like, my my yeah. labs are... Swells up for a day, That's but he'll be That's exactly fine. what <laughs> happened. They were like, oh, yeah, give him a day, day and a half. He'll be okay. And he was. But that's a Jack Russell, too. They're, like, different. That's a different kind of breed right there. Oh, my goodness. Maybe they are are part mongoose. Man, who knows? (laughs) Who knows? But You know, back real quick to the hunt test thing, though. I got to tell you, I miss the game. I really enjoy it, and I enjoy the people. But I always, when I was breeding labs, I bred for a long while, and had a kennel and a small kennel, just a backyard kennel, but I sold good quality dogs and everybody said, well, I don't want to, I don't want to do all that field trial and intestines. I just want a good hunting dog. It's like, well, what does that mean to you? A good okay. hunting dog. And then we'd get into the conversation about obedience, you know, marking, you know, teach them to mark or, you know, enhancing their instincts to mark, teach them to handle having a good conservation tool with you. And you know, at the end of the day, they start seeing it's like, well, I don't have to go hunt test, but I should train my dog up so he's not a loose cannon jackass running around destroying right. the hunt and converting his name from Charlie to to something in a four-letter <laughs> word for days, which we've all heard out in the marsh Absolutely. <laughs> at some point in our lives. So, you know, I think that the training aspects, you know, just kind of comes down to what, what, what people want, you know, but if you just just to say I want a good hunting dog, it takes a little work. You don't just crack them out of the box and they're good hunting dogs. you got to build those instincts on those instincts and enforce that obedience, and then you'll have a pretty good hunting dog. I agree with you 100%. That was – it was interesting. Um, I'm actually using uh, Cornerstone Gun Dog Academy. I don't know if you've heard, if you've heard of that. I have heard right. of them. I, I, I am not familiar with them, but I've heard they're of connected them, yes. with Southern Oak Kennels. So I bought the dog and hmm. and um, we're part of our puppy project that we're working on is using is walking through their fifty two plus program with this dog, and it's the first time I've used kind of an updated training system, training methods. 
I'd always train my dogs with the old Richard Walters book and, you know, and <laughs> that's good old say. school, you know, but old man, school. I, I started on that yep, too, brother. But I have to tell you the, there's a lot of clicker treat stuff in mixed in with this and the results that I'm getting in the learn then the shortening of the learning curve, Ed is unreal. I, we were having a little bit, yeah. we were having a little bit of trouble getting Hondo to actually like, just want to just go in his crate, you know, when you say kennel up or kennel, he was kind of hesitant, you know, and I was like, well, we'll do it the same way we did everything else. We just did the clicker and the treat. Now I look at him like kennel and he runs and he like bounces off the back of the kennel. He goes in it so fast, you know, because it's, it's phenomenal. And so learning all those things just, develops the dog into a more handleable, manageable, pleasurable animal to be around. And it was hilarious when I was talking with Barton about that. He's like, oh, man, since COVID, the sales of our program have gone through the roof because, you know, dad goes to work during the day and he doesn't see the dog until he gets home. He takes it out in the yard, trains it, plays with it, does whatever. He's like, this dog's phenomenal. And his wife's at home with the dog and maybe a kid or whatever. And they're like, uh, uh-uh. uh, you don't see what that dog's like when you're not around. Well, then all of a sudden right. they're at home working from home locked down. And they're like, and my dog's a jerk. I got to do something different. <laughs> Funny. My wife says the same thing. It's, it's the whole, it's the whole pecking order. I, I am on the top of the pecking order at our house, but, uh, this little poodle pointer I have is testing my wife's patience. Really? Time. I said, you got to be consistent with him. And you know, the whole, the whole gig, you know, you're going to express some dominance, yeah. over him. but she didn't want to do that. So that's interesting. I hadn't, I've not done the clicker piece. I've always been big on food right. treats. Uh, what, what the hell does any, why would anybody not give a puppy food in training basic obedience? You get the response so it's much. So faster. fast. No, And that was, and it's just the old school field trial. Like, ah, you don't do that. And half the old school field trials ruin dogs mm. anyway because they're burning them too much. They don't know how to use a collar. Right. So, no, I can put saw some, right. not all. But, no, right. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. And, and I'm not throwing anybody under the bus or anybody's training methods under the yeah. bus. I'm just saying, just sure. noticing what I used to do with two previous labs that were both really, really good, but took a lot yeah. more work to get to the same point where this pup's at right now. And I'm going, Whoa, you know, yeah, there's no need no. to do that. Yeah, if you got a, something better, uh, I I haven't looked into the clicking, so I, maybe I better dive it's into that a little bit. But I definitely use food treats, I definitely have used so it's, food it's just one more level of reinforcement, you know. So, when as soon as the dog, as soon as Hondo, if I say, you know, we're walking a heel and I stop, it's gotten to the point now where I don't even need to give a command when I stop, he sits and. If and immediately when he does that behavior, click and then reinforce with the treat. So the point where I can click and he it's it's just building those levels of response and association has been pretty incredible to watch. He learned yeah. dude, he learned place in like one session. Or I could send him from across the yard and boom, he'd hit that place board and I'm just going, Wow. That is that is amazing. It took like a week for my other for the other dog to get it. Well, that's what you yep. want. And here is a funny story. 
So I never truly place trained my old lab, Mackinac. I was always like, just right here, sit, you know, and yeah, and he and he and he'd be okay. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, why not? You know, I might as well work on it with him too and see if I can get it. No kidding, Ed. I'm working with Hondo and he's place training just beautifully. And I put him in the crate. I'm like, well, we'll do see if Mac will do it. And he's sitting there watching this the whole time. And I walk over and I look at it. He's looking at it. And I went, Mackinac, place. And he's sitting down at heel looking at me. And he walked over to the place board, looked at it. And he put one foot on it, sat down, and looked at me. <laughs> this is a nine-year. I, I thought you were going to tell me he's going to lift his no, leg. No, he just put one He put one foot, one front one foot. foot on it All and right. went, where's my treat? You know. Yeah, that's funny. I was like, that's a nine-year-old veteran dog right there. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not jumping through those yeah. hoops. That's for the puppy, you know? Holy smokes. That's hilarious. Well, it'll be, inter- it'll be interesting. Well, it's good you're getting the response. Yeah, no. Oh, I, I'm just glad you're getting the response. That's great. Because now you can move even quicker. There's no need to stay on something any longer than you have to. Move on to the next yeah, step. Yeah, and, so. and then go back and reinforce occasionally and just build, exactly. build, build, you know. And, and oh, it's yep. fun. I Dog training is one of those things that I I wish I did it more. Like I, I think I have my wife convinced to let's introduce a new puppy to the home every four years instead of every nine. You know, because I'm, yeah. I'm my old guy now. That's a better. That's a better. Yeah. Better rotation. I, I I think. Better rotation. That's what I was looking to say. Yeah. Exactly. Because I've got a fourteen. And a ten, the ten-year-old will hunt with. He still acts like he's a puppy and still in great shape. Um, but now I've got a six-month-old, so so I, you know, once and you can get dog poor real quick, <laughs> old dog poor. Yes. You know, if uh, you're not going to put them down just because they don't hunt anymore, yeah. obviously. No, hundred so percent. Can only have so so many in your house. Well, I will probably so. I will probably leave Hondo at home. I don't think we'll be at the point where he'll be ready to do anything other than like one-on-one stuff, really small level controlled. Right. I don't want to. I don't want to burn him. You know what I mean? I, I don't. Yeah. I don't want to put him in a He's situation. A yeah, I don't want to put him in a situation with a bunch of dudes and a bunch of other dogs and expect him to perform. That's not. That's not going to turn out well. I'll bring, I might bring yeah, my old upland. vet. I may bring Mackinac and just have another dog. And he's nine. He can upland hunt pretty well. If anything, he might he might still yep. be he might be a little too fast still, you know. He gets a little. We'll have to run him for a mile or two before we let him out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good point on the young dogs because it uplands is a lot more complicated than waterfowl hunting, as you all know. That's a great place to start your puppy is waterfowl hunting. Not that you don't take them upland hunting, you just don't have any expectations. I give them usually two seasons before they start putting the pieces together, but it depends on how many wild birds you put in. The best upland dog I had died at 15 and hunted at 15 seasons. Um, Now, mind you, I'll caveat that. His 15th season, he retrieved one dove, but hey, I checked the box. That's a hunt. That's a hunt. But he was phenomenal. I never hunt tested that dog, but uh, boy, was he my best upland dog because he saw so many freaking birds. We were in Nebraska, Kansas, hunting quail in Texas. We he saw, and now that I, when we moved to Colorado, I mean, he got all those same states plus Wyoming sage grouse plus Montana a few times. He saw birds. birds oh, that's birds, cool. Birds, birds, and they they put that repetition and those pieces together, and they just get better and better at it. So. 
you're in a good position where you're at. I, I know uh, I know there's plenty of good opportunities in Wyoming, and you can always buzz up to Montana or meet me over in Nebraska. Or but yeah, we'll have to do something. Places that, to go. And you're right. You know, I, I think back when I first got Mackinac, I was in Sheridan, Wyoming, when I first got him, and that's a lot different than Cody. It's a lot grass, grassland, prairie. Yeah. You know, we had a lot of sharp tail. Didn't have any sage grouse. Well, some, but not very many to speak of. Didn't hunt them. Not Didn't enough. Hunt them. Yeah. But had they had a very, very robust um, bird farm operation that the Game and Fish runs that they really where they release pheasants in selected yeah selected pieces of public ground, and so I think I shot sixty three or sixty four roosters over Mackinac before he was a year old. I mean, he was like six months when the bird season opened. And I'm same thing as you said, no Perfect expectations. Change. Let's just go out, me and him, one on one. And if I'd have put him on the ground, that's in that in that same ground at age four or five, I probably wouldn't have had to fire a shot on those on those release birds. He'd have caught them all. But at six months old, he didn't have the program figured out. But as far as learning how to find birds and what to smell and what to look for, and then retrieving birds, having to mark birds and retrieve them pretty much independently that was he, he that yeah. that accelerated him a lot and then when i when i moved him oh, yeah. on to waterfowl the next year it was just that much easier you know it was it was like oh yeah. i can see that bird right there i didn't i don't have to go hunt for it in the brush most of the time <laughs> it's floating down the it's floating yeah. down the river you know what i mean and so it was a little bit easier a little bit different but yeah the young dog that repetition and the young dog thing you know that was that's something that upland upland hunting can be a, can that'll be a one on one scenario just me and him, um, but it'll also be that'll transition over into waterfowl too. You know he's not going to go on those those six man those six man smoker hunts where it's chaos. You know the blinds come flying yeah. open and everybody's sitting up and swatting geese out of the air and it's it's chaos. I you. I can't imagine what yeah. that what the sensory overload for a young dog, you know. <laughs> it has to be off no. the charts. <laughs> yeah, and I just don't want that. I, 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 we'll do little stuff here and there, you know. Get him up, definitely be getting him on birds, and but it's not going to yeah. be. It's going to be very controlled, very easygoing. But well, what other hunts do you have planned this fall? Well, let's see. I'm not going to take my young uh, poodle pointer dove hunting tomorrow morning. Uh, I think that would undo. I, I told my buddy Ronnie Bay when we were doing a podcast, I said, that'll probably undo everything I just did for the last three months. So I'm going to go dove hunting in the morning, um, probably the next three mornings and, or two mornings. And then I'm going to go look for mountain sharp tails in western Colorado nice. um, and probably chase some blue grouse uh sage grouse opens i'll probably hunt a little bit before we meet up uh colorado opens on the 12th of september so i may get a hunt in there i may run over to the sand hills um but then the big trips will be into nebraska i'm here in kansas is in decent shape this year it may be worth running down to kansas um but i also am pondering pretty hard to go up to montana for a couple of weeks or at least 10, maybe seven, 10 days. So, um, if I do that, I'll plan a loop to come yeah, down do that, <laughs> and maybe in your neck of the woods and go hit, uh, 
some of the good hunting chucker country i know we all know yeah. of, but won't talk well, about there, there's a there's a little <laughs> bit of that around but i don't i don't those are spots that don't get talked about very much but i i'm privy yeah. to that <laughs> and that's something that i don't really do much of until until later in the later in the season when it's cold because yeah. that's that's snaky, yep. that's snaky snaky country. country this time of year and it's yep. like nah, i'll wait i'll wait yeah before i connect with you guys i'm probably gonna go look for a few checkers and hunts but i'm gonna be real careful yeah um i i i know some places around some hay meadows i can hunt on some private that i yeah, you can get them catch them yeah. along those hay meadows not too not too right big and, huns, there, and, and i don't know about where what you're looking at but Huns, it seems like you can find Huns in pretty cheap grass patches and that in that kind of country where I don't seem to run into a lot of snakes in that, but you get in those rocks, chasing those the rocks around, right. and it's yeah. like. Yep. That's the, that's you're the gonna ticket get, right your there. Your dog's going to get popped, or you're going to get popped, one of the two. But yeah. no, I didn't. And sage grouse, I mean, you know, it's kind of hit and miss with sage grouse, but by and large, I've never run into snakes right. out in the sage hunt, sage grouse. So. I never have to. I just hunt them early in the morning when they're still a little slow. So, or you hope they're slow. Right. So. No, because it's usually, but, I don't know um, about what your temps are doing, but it's it's cold at night here. You know, I, I was up in the mountains last again. weekend and it was in the 30s every night. Yeah, we were up, uh, we were in southern Wyoming over in the little snake valley there and it got down to 34. Yeah. So, yep. not here on the front range. I'm in Fort Collins area. Oh. So. <laughs> We're good to bike below 60 these days. It's going to get colder. There's a little bit of a front moving in, so hopefully we get some precip. Some of these, some of these. Yeah, areas. I think the whole West could use more precipitation. It's been pretty spotty. You know, we had a yeah. we had a little cold front blow through a couple what a week ago, and it it got cold and it rained all day long for a couple days, but it you know now it's dry as a bone out there again, and it is just yeah. is what it is, but. Well, that's cool, man. I wish uh, I wish I could do more early season bird hunting. The Eastman stuff kind of keeps me busy chasing. Got yeah, you got you got other yeah, things chasing big game around, <laughs> which is you know first world problems, right? I got to give up upland bird hunting to go chase elk, so right. big deal. But no, it's it's fun, and I I'm gonna be in the same boat. I think I might take a little time in the morning and go see if I can kill some doves and maybe take that young dog out and see if we can get him a couple dove retrieves just me and him but we'll see sure. we'll see yeah that'll cool. be fun yeah then waterfowl we'll see if they come down did you guys have a lot of you guys <laughs> end up having some birds last year not really it was it was pretty rough yeah. last year um some private land that i hunt didn't even get water Ooh. last year so there were no ponds there was nothing to hunt so we got pretty good public land duck hunting in colorado the the wildlife management area systems along with plat are pretty good it's a reservation system and it can be damn good uh, a lot of the wildlife areas get early season uh you get we get some pretty good duck hunting and then late when it freezes up it gets really good on the river but we just didn't get the birds down but goose hunting you're you're paying for leases no. for the most okay. part so um it's hard to knock on a door and get permission to go goose hunting so i did a bunch of scouting when i first moved here and borderline begged people i was giving hey here's some antelope sausage you know <laughs> tried to bribe them to let me go kill some of their geese like come on they're eating yeah. great you know it's like they either had it already leased out or they just didn't want to 
hassle with the hunters. So, but you know, upland birds, you can still knock on doors and, and get permission. It's getting harder and harder. Um, you probably grew up, you know, in a, in a landscape that you just go out and knock on doors. My grandpa was a gas truck driver for standard oil, uh, back in the day. So you, I knew everybody, so I could go anywhere. Yeah, I always said FedEx drivers, UPS drivers, the mailman, and uh, the gas truck drivers are the ones that have the best hunting. <laughs> if they want to, if they want to use it, yeah. you know, they know everybody. No, that, and that is so. the truth. That is the truth. Yeah, it's definitely changed. Um, when I moved out here, I don't know, 15 years ago now, we had I could goose hunt anywhere I wanted in a pretty much a three county radius, you know, it was, yeah, and it was, it's not like that anymore. You know, I talked to the guys that are still, that still live back there in Michigan and, and it's the same thing. It's they're either leasing stuff or they're ha- competing with leasing or they've gotten out of it because of that. And, you know, we, we have a couple small leases here and it had to do with like landowners, you know, maybe not wanting to have to mess with, dealing with hunting permission or whatever anymore and it's worked out but i i would hate to see it get to the point where everything that every piece of ground that you around you you have to lease to to hunt yeah because it's it's at the point now where if somebody if somebody gives me a hauler and says hey there's especially kids if there's some birds down there 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 there's a bunch of birds you know down there on that on that ground you got leased could i could i go hunt it and it's like, yeah, if I don't have plans to hunt it or I can't, if I have plans to hunt it, why don't you come with me? But if I, if I can't yeah. hunt it, go for it. You know, I don't think I've, yeah. I don't think I've told anybody no to the point where, um, unless it was, I had a plan to be in there or something like that and I could, it wouldn't work out. Sure. But otherwise it's like, I think too many guys are leasing up ground just to keep other people out. And yeah. I think that's a fair, I point. understand it. I mean, I do, I get it because you've got to have opportunity, but at the same time, it's like, there's room to do both. In my opinion, where if you have a lease and you got Joe blow that wants to hunt it on his day off on a Wednesday, and you're not going to be able to hunt it for whatever, either take him with you or let him go hunt it. You know, let him go. Yeah. And I probably yeah. get, I'll probably get yelled at or argued with for that, for that, but I think in the long run, if if we if we're not trying to recruit and retain hunters, we're cutting our nose off to spite our face. I think that's spot on, um, and it's a good thing for all the public access programs that we have and the landowners that engage in them. That's certainly something at the TRCP we do a lot. We work with farm bill programs, you know, encouraging open fields and block management, walk-in access in Wyoming, whatever it's called in any state. Uh, to try to maximize those opportunities because people have to have a place to go. You can't recruit them into a pay-to-play system, not everybody yeah. anyway. So I'm with you. I get it, but there's kind of a, a threshold where we need <laughs> – where there can be too much of one thing or another, you know, and you, uh, the public lands are getting full. COVID taught us that. Oh, my gosh. Uh, certainly some of my honey holes have been hot-spotted. Um <laughs> Unfortunately, not every podcaster is like you, 
Uh, and I have slipped a few times and said, you know, when I say the sand hills, that's a big ass that piece is a of big, ground, you know, that's a big area. That's a region. I'm not saying where to go, but I have heard on podcasts hot spotting of where oh. I go, and it really irritates me. Yeah, but, no, you know, no, you can't. People have to kind of figure it out on their own too. Yeah, you, you know? can't but do we that. Need, yeah, we need lots of public lands uh, to accommodate, you know, the new hunters coming on and some of us that are getting up there in age. But but I'm with you. I understand uh, why some people lease things up and why landowners lease it out. Right. They're trying to make a living, too. Trying so. to make a living and, and trying to control access. You know, if you, get, if you, get, if you lease yeah. it to one person and they control access, that's one less headache for a landowner to have to deal with, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, and it's. Whereas block management in Montana or walk-in accident, you just and don't you know. Hear, you know and you hear nightmares know. from landowners that have stuff yep. enrolled in, in programs that it's like state may not have the budget to patrol or to, you know, manage all of those areas. And so it's kind of up to the landowner to be like, hey, I got, I got dudes driving all yeah. over the place out here or in places I don't want them. And the state doesn't have the budget really to, to do much about no. it, you know. They, they they can't keep their eyes on everything. The average game warden probably has hundreds of thousands of acres they're responsible Can you, for. I mean, Same thing with the biologists. Well, exactly. You've, it's a big you've office. played that game. You know exactly <laughs> what that is. Yeah. And, you know, I've policed hunters in the field. I think it's incumbent on all of us when you see somebody doing something wrong, don't run up and, you know yell at them and scream and call them dirty names and all that good stuff. Although that's comes to the top of the list. sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, trying to educate them. It's like, look, put yourself in this guy's shoes, you know, or this woman's shoes that owns this ranch and they're just trying to be good to us hunters and you're throwing crash out here. You're cutting cookies in the, whatever yeah. you're doing, you know, you're cutting ruts in the yep. road and, and driving off the roads. Don't do that. You're making it bad well, for everybody. That's... We don't need any, we don't need any more black eyes. Uh, that's for sure. No, I completely, um, I completely enough. agree. You know, and you, you talk about public spots being soaked up with with COVID. You're right. We were. I had a little honey hole uh, for trout fishing. Really, really great cutthroat stream. And I went in there this year. Took my wife in there. Took a day off around our anniversary and said, "Let's go trout fishing." You know, and we went down there and. I saw 30 different vehicles coming in and out of there you know, on the way oh, in and on the way out. Only one plate was from Wyoming. And I'm not complaining about tourists. You know, that's we need those tourism dollars. But I'm thinking, how in the world did you find this spot? How did you even this find it? This is not yeah, exactly. something that's just like <laughs> there's no signs. This is not something that you go right. and, and you go just drive out and go, oh, look at this. You have to go hunt that spot. You have to go find it. Yeah. And I told, and there were boot tracks up and down the bank, and I mean, I'm getting refusal rises from cutthroats, and I'm going, something's off here, you know. These fish are, yeah. What's what's going on? Uh, yeah, and it's <laughs> all it is is just an increased, an increased appetite for recreation is 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 what it yep. is, and public, which is absolutely. a good thing. I mean, there's there's a thresh, threshold to that too, but you know, I think everybody's complaining now. Because uh, they're seeing people in their favorite spots, but it is we're good. spoiled. Yeah, we are. You know, spoiled. we've been spoiled for a long exactly. time. Where where guys like you and I have had stuff to ourselves, or we've had little little honey holes, and nobody's around. Well, guess what? There's more folks on the landscape, and they're looking to recreate, 
and they're going to find your spots. They're so that patience factor, like like eventually what you said, they are. <laughs> have some patience, you know, and and give people yeah. some grace. I think is pretty important too. But yeah. Well, Ed, I appreciate your time very, very much. And we're going to have to do another one of these when we get together to hunt. We'll sit down and do a hunt recap podcast or something like that. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, we never even got into the politics of sagegrass, <laughs> which is probably yeah, a good thing. Yeah, I think that might be uh, yeah. a good thing. We could, <laughs> we might save that for uh, an after hunt um, discussion. Yeah. But Exactly. Yeah, we'll kick that around the campfire there when there we're you, on hunting. I um and we can do it. We can do a loop back on the merits of the permit system because we are going to be operating under that uh, the the current regulations this year, which is a two week yep. season, two birds, four in possession, um, and that may change next year. We'll see. Um, there are merits to those systems, but uh, again, to me, the continued uh, you know uh, changing of harvest seasons and and uh, restricting restricting harvest is just a sign that we're getting something wrong on the habitat side, and we we got to do better. So I, I I think this documentary that you're working on is going to be fantastic to highlight some of these issues and and talk about solutions and how we can reverse. Well, the and trends. that's and that's the big thing, and I think we need to definitely hit on that. Um, is how do how do we how can we fix this? Because I I think you're yep. right. What we're doing right now with talking about limiting harvest and doing those things, I think that's a Band-Aid. And I think the the to really yep. stop the hemorrhaging, we've got to address habitat. And I think we get into that and we get into the politics and we just let her rip. And after after <laughs> we do a hunt, and now it'll be fun. And I'm really excited to, to get together and chase some birds in a couple of weeks. Me too, my friend. Look forward to cool. it. Thanks yeah, for having anytime. me on. I appreciate, I appreciate it. your time.